A very important Bible character was born on or near the Feast of Trumpets. I'm not referring to Jesus in this case. He was the son, rather, of a woman who had been barren. And for that, she was verbally abused by her husband's second wife. When we are misunderstood and mistreated by someone, the natural reaction is to bear a grudge or worse, try to get even. I said the natural reaction. And by doing so, we take matters into our own hands rather than trust God to neutralize the damage to our reputation and equalize the status of everyone fairly. We might want to act in retaliation, but when we trust God to rescue, and he does so, this is called vindication, vindication. And this woman I just mentioned was a was married to a man who had two wives. The other one unfairly treated her, chiding her for being barren. Barrenness in the ancient world was one of the most horrible things, one of the worst things to happen to a woman in the thinking of women. And so this woman appeals to God, who hears her prayer and gives her a son who would serve as a major spiritual leader among his people. He would be a Levite and a priest who serves with the priests as an apprentice. He would be a prophet, the first prophet after Moses, and the first of the order of the prophets. This prophet would anoint the first two kings of Israel. He would be a judge, the last judge of Israel, in this time of transition of leadership from the age of the judges to the monarchies. And fourth, he was probably the founder of the school of the prophets, which trained young men to speak for God. So of whom do I speak? Have you figured it out yet? Just raise your hand. Anybody think they know who it is? All right, I'm glad to see that. Of course, that boy who was born is Shmuel. Now, you all recognize that name, right? Shmuel. That's the Hebrew for Samuel. Samuel. Now, next quiz question. See, being a teacher, I like quizzes. All right. What was his mother's name? I heard a few names out there. How many think they know her name? All right. It's Hannah. Hannah. So today we're going to study this heartwarming story together. Hannah is our heroine for today's sermon. This is going to be a profile study of Hannah. And this will continue a biographical series that I began here years ago. The title of the sermon is Petition Granted. Petition Granted. The story of Hannah takes place during the time of the judges. Now, we've heard a lot about judges ad nauseum past few weeks. But when we hear about judges in the Bible, we get the wrong impression. They were not black-robed justices, but rather they were champions. They were leaders. They were heroes. They would temporarily serve for God and then disappear or be passed on to someone else. The end of the judges period was leading into the time of the first Israelite monarchies. This was a time that judges declares everyone did that which was right in his or her own eyes. 
It was a time of moral decline, sensual pleasure, debauchery, harlotry, drunkenness, rape. That was the norm of the day. And rapidly we are heading in that same direction. And this woman, Hannah, is a link at the end of the period of the judges, a very dark period, in the light that will begin to shine leading up to the Israelite monarchies. God did not approve everything he records in the book of Judges, but he faithfully recorded us, recorded it to tell us how bad things were. And so this is a story about the development of a woman's spiritual life during a time of national apostasy. And we can see a modern parallel to this as well. When it would have been easy for her to simply make excuses, make excuses for less honorable behavior. But she refuses to take the easy route. So let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we'll start in verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. I'll be reading from the classic English Bible, the King James translation. And we're somewhere ballpark figure around 1100 B.C. for this story. A time of crisis demanding change leading to the establishment of the monarchy. 1 Samuel 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. Now those are good masculine names. I know people are like, like to choose some unusual names today for their boys. Well, how about these? <laughs> Jeroham, Elihu, Tohu, Tohu and Bohu. That's, that's not a good one, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, this man, Elkanah, is called an Ephrathite. Now, that's an old term for Ephraimite. Ephraimite. Ramathame Zophim means the two high places of the watchers. It was a village referred to only here in our Old Testament. Many think it was the same as Ramah, which is mentioned in verse 19, which was just five miles north of Jerusalem. But that was in the tribe of Benjamin. Ramathaim Zophim is in the tribe, in the territory of Ephraim, as you see from verse 1. So this indicates it was distinct from Ramah, but the location is unknown. His name is Elkanah, or Elkanah or Elkanah in Hebrew, depending on how, which accent you want to use. His name means God created. He was an Ephraimite geographically, but he was a Levite genetically because the tribe of Levi was not given a territory. Instead, the Levites were given cities within the other tribes. And so Levites lived in all the other tribes in certain cities, And so this Levitical family lived in the tribe of Ephraim in this particular village. So his name means God created or God brought or acquired or possessed, depending on the Hebrew translation. And he's a Levite of the Kohathite clans of Levi. But he referred to it as an Ephraimite because he lived in this mountainous region of the territory of Ephraim since Levites were not given their own territory. Instead, they were given allotted towns. 
So the old name for Ephraimite was Ephrathite. Samuel and Saul come from the northern tribes. Daniel came from the southern tribe of Judah. But there were regional tensions before, during, and after the establishment of the Israelite monarchy, something that is not strange to us Americans. Verse 2, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Two wives. Penina means pearl or coral or one with rich hair. There you go, ladies. But Hannah means grace or favor. And watch for that to appear again later. Hannah was probably the first wife since she was named first. And then Elkanah married another in the hopes of bearing a son because she was barren. Multiple wives was not unheard of. It was called polygyny, that is, a man with multiple wives. It was an accepted custom throughout the ancient Middle East, but it was an uncommon practice among the Israelites generally, except in certain circumstances, and most of these before the monarchy period. Was polygyny permitted by God? And if so, under what circumstances and for what reasons? Well, certainly it was not God ideal based on the instruction of Genesis. But God did allow it, but when he did, he legislated it. It was permitted in the case of what is called leveret marriage. Two brothers who marry and one brother dies and he does not have a male heir. And so in Deuteronomy, God gave instruction for the living brother to marry the widow and raise up a son to the deceased brother's name, to preserve that name in the tribe. This is all in Deuteronomy chapter 25, which we're not going to read, but you can find the instruction there. And there were times that people did. Men did marry a second wife like Elkanah because their first wife was barren. And it was so important to have a son to carry on the family name, to receive the inheritance within the tribe, to preserve the land and the inheritance. Now, when a man took a second wife for other reasons, God also legislated in the book of Deuteronomy that when it came time to pass on the inheritance, the firstborn was to receive a double portion. Whether that was the firstborn of his favorite wife or not, it just mattered who was the first boy. And that's in Deuteronomy 25. Failure to have children was considered a tragedy and by some considered God's punishment. And women who were barren were often ostracized, even divorced. Children were considered a blessing from God. Children were needed to work on the farm. Without sons, a family name would not be preserved. Without an heir, of the family would not be able to maintain its place in the tribal allotments. And a woman without a son would never have the chance of being a mother of the promised Messiah. The Proto-Evangelium is called from Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who would stomp on the head of the seed of the serpent. The first messianic prophecy back in Genesis. And I covered that in a sermon last uh, spring. We have some outstanding examples of barrenness in the Old Testament and new. 
Can you think of them? A wife who could not bear a child, and the husband resorts to other means to raise up children. Some famous names, you'll recognize them, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel. In our New Testament, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. So even though polygamy was an accepted custom, the Bible shows they often had disastrous results. There was turbulence and there was division, as we will see in this family. So here we find out that one woman has children, the other does not. In verse 3, this man went out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, not Jerusalem, Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. He went yearly to Shiloh. Why? Well, in Judges we read, Behold, there is a feast of the Lord in Shiloh yearly in a place which is on the north side of Bethel. People were going to Shiloh because that's where the tabernacle was. Shiloh, about 20 to 30 miles north of Jerusalem, Here is where the tabernacle was located for about 300 years. And it was possibly the first central sanctuary, even before Jerusalem. It's the place where Joshua divided the promised land among the tribes. The Bible doesn't say what occasion this was to go and worship the Lord, but many commentators agree it probably was the Feast of Tabernacles, which makes sense. Just like we do, that's the one that we travel the most to go and worship God. Religious life revolved around feasts and festivals in the ancient Near East. And he went there to worship, it says, the Lord of hosts. This is the first of almost 240 references in the Bible to God as Lord of hosts. He's also called God of hosts. Lord God of hosts. It's a unique name used most often in the prophetical books, but it stresses the innumerable company of angels that God commands. And Christ himself in our New Testament, well, actually, as he appeared uh, in the Old Testament, uh, pre-incarnate form, uh, captain of the host of the Lord in Joshua 5. Uh, could have easily commanded 12 legions of angels when he was on the cross. He had that command, and yet he chose not to use it. The name Lord of Sabaoth is used only once in our New Testament. Yahweh Sabaoth is what it says in Hebrew. Lord of hosts was a military term. It's one of God's names which refers to God who commands the angelic armies in heaven. It can be the Angelic armies or human armies, sometimes host was used that way, uh, or even the celestial bodies. These are all hosts that God commands, but he's the God of armies. So Eli, Hophni, Phinehas were the priests. Eli's name means God is high. And so when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. Feast gifts, so they could have a good feast, an abundant feast, including probably many special meals. But verse 5, to Hannah, 
He gave a worthy portion, probably a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. Now, this is clearly favoritism, but she does not have children, and so he's showing her some consideration. Emotionally, he loved Hannah. He's attached to her. Physically, he gives her this double portion, perhaps to make up for her barrenness, one portion for her, one for maybe a son to come. We don't know, but he gave her a double portion. And it reminds us of the double portion that was to go to the firstborn as well. Literally, worthy portion is a portion for two persons. Double portions, most general explanation. But the Hebrew is uncertain, but most conclude it's double portion. All right, so verse 5, he did so because the Lord had shut up her womb. Now, we have to understand that in the Hebrew way of phrasing things, God can give or withhold children. Fertility was understood throughout the Bible as a divine gift. We've actually used that word gift in at least one of our children's names. But barrenness was considered a disgrace by women, causing great distress to the women concerned. And for many, it was considered even a curse. So the idea that God had closed up her womb is frequent in the Old Testament because God has the ability to control things. It is as if he directly caused it. But in the Hebrew, it's expressed that he had caused it. The Bible displays both God's what's called his permissive will, that which he allows, and also his directive will, that which he actually causes. But they both are given tribute back to God. It's the way the Hebrew language phrased it. Another example was when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see, actually, he brought out what was already in Pharaoh's heart before. And now verse 6. Notice the family tension. Her adversary, or rival, also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord has shut up her womb. Her adversary. That's Penina. There's contention in the home. There are jealous, hurtful Uh, Words deliberately spoken to make life miserable for Hannah because she was childless. We have other couples or women who were at odds in the Bible as well in Genesis. Sarah and Hagar, Leah and Rachel. Yeah, the Bible tells the truth. It tells us exactly as things were. It doesn't try to whitewash it. And it caused Hannah to be enraged or literally to thunder. She's upset. She's provoked. She's angry because this Penina comes down on her every year to feast, scolding her for not bearing a child and implying it was her fault. It may not have been her fault. We don't know what went wrong. But nonetheless, there we have it in verse 7. And so as he did so year by year, Elkanah, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. God required that Israelite men appear before him at three festival seasons, three times a year, Exodus says. And many brought their families, but it was not required of them, especially if women were carrying children far along. But this shows Hannah's devotion, that she went faithfully 
with her husband and even with Penina and uh, had to endure this every feast. But I want you to notice what Hannah did not do with these ugly words that were spoken to her. She did not answer in kind. At least we have no record of her retorting to Penina or getting into fisticuffs. <laughs> she just takes it patiently. Though it's eating her up, she's discontented. And she's going to come up with a plan. She knows the right thing to do, as we'll see. And so in verse 8, Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you eat not? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? <laughs> now, some women read that and they say, he just doesn't get it, does he? He just doesn't understand. You just don't understand. Title of a popular book many years ago. <laughs> that may have been the case. But we have a similar statement just over the previous book uh, when Ruth is touted by the townspeople for Naomi that Ruth is better than seven sons to Naomi. So it seems in the judges' period this was a common expression. We have to understand husbands or sons were essential for women's survival in that age. It's very different today. Children gave mothers honor and provision if their husbands were deceased. And Elkanah, since he was alive, may have been sincerely trying to imply to her, why can't you be content, even though you don't have a son, because I'm here, I'm alive, I'm providing for you. But she wants a son. She wants a son. In this culture, having a husband or adult son was essential to provide for the women's food, clothing, shelter, protection, he wants her, perhaps, to keep her perspective. So, verse 9. Look what she does. She didn't go for her boxing gloves. <laughs> Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by the post of the temple of the Lord. She rises up to accomplish something. She's strengthened and she goes from the house of contention to the house of the Lord. She's determined to do something significant. We find that the others were eating, drinking. There were lavish banquets of meat and wine. Eli was the high priest and judge at this time. He was descended from the fourth son of Aaron. But he would sit on a seat out front of this sanctuary symbol of his authority by the post, the doorpost, perhaps referring to the curtains of the entrance of the tabernacle where people would approach Eli for judicial rulings since he was a judge. Perhaps it was an elevated platform at that time. We don't know. But the word in the King James is temple. I know in the New King James it says tabernacle, but the word in the Hebrew seems closer to the word temple. The central sanctuary was a house or temple. And it seems to be more permanent complex than the tabernacle was in the time of Moses and Aaron. We don't know for sure. There's, there's great debate over it. But anyway, this is where people came to worship the Almighty. And it's in Shiloh. 
And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept sore. Bitterness of soul. You know, that same phrase was used by Naomi in the book of Ruth. That she was bitter of soul and she lost her husband and two sons. But Hannah knows what to do. She goes to where God is. Because the tabernacle or temple was where God dwelt on earth. On earth among his people. That was the purpose of this building. So that God could dwell among his people. And she's weeping sore, severely. She's terribly upset. The sorrow of childlessness and being berated every year, every year by Penina, maybe others. Moves her to act decisively. And she does the right thing. She goes to the tabernacle and she prayed to the Almighty, the Eternal One. And she vowed a vow, verse 11, and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your handmaid and remember me and not forget your handmaid, but will give unto your handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And we have a lot in one verse to dissect here. So let's start. Hannah is the first person to address God by this title, Lord of hosts, that we have record of in Scripture. The most common title for Israel's God, present above the Ark of the Covenant, Yahweh, God's covenant name. She uses it more than any other woman, at least that I know of. And she appeals to him, remember me, don't forget, every year when I come up to Shiloh yearly, the people will soon cry for a king. But she cries for a child. She wants a child so badly. Contrast that to the attitudes of some today. She says in the vow, I will give him to the Lord all of his life. Samuel, her son who is to come, is a descendant of Levi. He's the Lord's property. He was to serve the eternal from age 25 to 50. But the vow here implies that he would be consecrated to the eternal from his infancy to his death. From womb to tomb, as we might say. And that he should not only act as a Levite, but as a Nazarite. Because no razor will come upon his head. Levites customarily serve from age 25 to 50. So instead, in this vow, she promises to give that boy to God his whole life. This no razor should come upon his head. What, what does that tell us? Well, you just go back to one book again, or, or two books, to uh, Judges and We read there, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, in this case Samson, and no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. See, Nazarites took on a vow. Generally, it was temporary. But for Samuel, this will be a lifelong vow. And Nazarites were not to cut their hair. They were not to drink wine nor touch dead bodies, a symbol of their dedication to God. So she would dedicate to her her son to be a Nazarite his whole life long, to be 
a lifelong Levite serving God and a lifelong Nazarite. This is a solemn vow, which is characteristic of the judges period. Even among Gentiles, they would make vows like this as well. And she promised that if God would give her a son, she would give that child back to God. And she's the only woman recorded that I know of in the Old Testament who made and kept such a vow. Well, she really is a remarkable woman. Now, vows had two things were typical. One was a condition. If, I'm appealing to God, if you'd provide me this, then, if then, you have a condition, then you have a commitment. If you give me a son, then I will commit him unto you. It was typical of vows. Now, what is important to note here? is that based on verses in the book of Numbers, when a woman made such a vow, her husband or her father could disallow it. He had the option. If she made a vow rashly, it was somehow going to impact the family negatively, he could overturn it. I want you to see if Elkanah ever overturns her vow. So verse 12 All right, so back in verse 11, again, it's a long verse, but she says, remember me, God. Don't forget your handmaid. She calls herself God's female servant. If you'll give me this man child, this son, I'll give him to him all the days of his life and no razor come on his head. And it came to pass, verse 12, as she continued praying before the eternal, Eli marked her mouth. So she's praying, no words are coming out, but she's moving her lips. Anybody ever pray like that? Now, sometimes you'll see people moving their lips, but it's not for that reason. But for her, it was. And Eli sees it, and he suspects the worst. Verse 13, Hannah, she's spoken her heart. She's got heart-to-heart communication. Instant prayer. Only her lips moved. But her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunken. Now, where would he have come up with such an idea? Now, she contributes much prayer. This is the first time a woman is shown praying in a temple like this or at the temple. And she creates her own unique relationship with God. Her voice is not heard. This is silent mental prayer. And this is the only example that I can think of of silent prayer. It's explicitly stated. So she's praying. And Eli thinks she's drunk. Where did he get such an idea? Well, then the rest of the story, perhaps an example of his own sons, because Eli's sons were renegades. They were priests as well, but they took advantage of the people, and you'll find that later in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel. This might indicate it was not uncommon for drunken people to enter the sanctuary, and God actually made a law that priests were not to drink before performing holy duty. This shows us the religious and moral deterioration of the time. And Eli himself declining as a spiritual leader. He assumes the worst. Now, can you think of an example from our New Testament where people are moved upon divinely and their enemies assume they're drunk? Yeah, the book of Acts and the apostles. Peter says, no. It's way too early to drink. 
They were moved by another spirit, not by alcoholic spirits. So verse 15, Hannah answered and said, notice this respectful reply. No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul, my nephesh, my heart to God. I haven't drunk wine. I haven't drunk beer or intoxicating drink. I'm pouring out my soul to God. Unlike other barren women, she takes her problem directly to God. Right at where he was located on earth. This is how we respond to false accusations. Eli had assumed the worst and she replies to him politely, patiently. She calls him my Lord. She honors him for his office. As the proverb says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. She gave a soft answer. Would we reply in the same way? I hope so. Because my Lord was a term of honor and dignity. So she shows respect to the office, even though Eli may not have been a fully respectful person at this point. She's pouring out her spirit, her ruach, in Hebrew, her soul. She's a sorrowful spirit. She's pouring out her soul to God. And so verse 16, don't count me as a handmaid. Don't count your handmaid, rather, as a daughter of Belial, as a wicked woman. That's the way it's phrased literally. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Hannah denies that she's a daughter of Belial. Now, that was a phrase used for wicked, valueless, worthless people. And it was commonly used because just in chapter 2, we find Eli's sons are so described. They're described as sons of Belial. That's how bad they were. So it's a phrase that's commonly being used. And in our New Testament, Belial is a name for Satan. Pretty bad. She says, no, I'm pouring out my complaint and my grief to God. She knew where to go, brethren. She's a lesson for us. That when terrible things happen to us, and they will, we're back from the feast now. We're back in our jobs, back in our communities, back in families that don't understand why we do things the way we do. And we're going to have sometimes some heavy flack come our way. And Hannah's a model for us on how to handle it. She shows respect. She turns to God. Don't count me as a wicked woman, because from the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken to my God. And notice how Eli responds. Because of this soft answer, Eli answered and said, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you've asked of him. He honors her in return. She had shown him favor and grace, agreeing with her name. And he gives it back to her in kind. He could have been very defensive. He could have answered her harshly, told her off, chided her. But instead, he answers with kindness and he blesses her. 18. And she said, let your handmaid, this servant woman, find grace in your sight. There's that word grace. Remember I told you watch for it, which is the meaning of her name. 
Let me, let your handmaid find grace in your sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. All right, what's that mean? She's confident God has heard, and he will take care of this. And that burden is lifted off of her shoulders. She has unburdened herself into the arms of God. That's the way it's expressed in the Proverbs, to unload a burden into God's arms. So let me find grace in your sight. So she went her way. Now she eats, gets back to normal. Her countenance is no more sad. She had confidence that God heard her prayer and would answer. Verse 19 kind of begins a new chapter, a new page. And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the eternal and returned and came to their house to Ramah. Ramah's in Benjamin, and apparently they're living there at this time. And Elkanah knew Hannah's wife, and the Lord remembered her. Hmm. All right. So what's happening here? So when it came to verse 20, it came to pass when the time was come about after Hannah conceived, she bare a son, called his name Shmuel, Samuel, saying, Because I've asked him of the Lord. So when the time had come. In verse 20, the word time indicates God's time. Literally, at the end of the year. At the end of the year. Or as you see in the margins of even some King James Bibles, the revolution of days, the circuit of days. It has reference to Israel's civil calendar, which ran from autumn to autumn. Unlike the sacred calendar, spring to spring. And so at the end of the year, in the book of Exodus, we're told the feast of ingathering is at the end of the year. It was the end of the agricultural year. The sacred year, of course, is in the spring, spring to spring. But the civil year, because of the final crops that are brought in, autumn to autumn. This is the turning of the year for the civil calendar. For those who were here on the Feast of Trumpets, you remember what I told you about Rosh Hashanah, head of the year? Tradition has it that Samuel was born on the Feast of Trumpets. In the modern synagogue liturgy, this story we are reading today is read on Rosh Hashanah, which means head of the year, the new year. That's why it's called Jewish New Year's. Jewish New Year's is called the beginning of the new year. So that's what tradition says. He was born at or near or on trumpets at the end of the year, which began the season of the four uh, autumn holy days, including Feast of Tabernacles. She calls him Samuel. The name Samuel is variously interpreted as uh, asked of God or name of God or heard of God. It's a word play that we don't always grasp because we're reading it in a different language. But the text relates it to the verb for ask. She had asked for a boy. And in this story, at least, his name is associated with that asking. Ask or borrow or lent, as it was in the King James Seven times it occurs in this chapter. So Anna, Hannah had asked, begged, or borrowed 
her son from God. And so she will eventually give him back to God as she promised, as we will see. His birth is part of a long story of godly men and women who prayed for a child as God's gift. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Samson's mother, Elizabeth, and their son's unusual births were thought to be symbolic of the importance of the role they will play in Israelite history. Something special about these boys. She calls him Samuel because I have asked him of the Lord. Verse 21. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. Common feature of Old Testament piety. Perhaps his vow was a prayer for God's blessing on his crops and flocks to be fulfilled at the Feast of Tabernacles. Or maybe it was her vow for the son, but he does what the law required to offer sacrifice. Verse 22. But Hannah went not up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I'll bring him that he may appear before the eternal and there abide forever. Hannah realizes the importance of a mother's influence. Sons were prized in that culture. It was just the way it was. And she says, no, I'm going to wait until the child be weaned. How long would that be? Well, during the intertestamental period, some Jewish literature was written, including 2 Maccabees, which said that was somewhere three to four years, that women would wean a child after three to four years. Some would even nurse up to seven years. But um, some commentators think that this weaning process involves spiritual training as well, which could go on up to about age 12. It's interesting that the word for child here can be an infant up to an adolescent. Because she's saying, I'm going to give him to the Lord after I wean him. To me, to give a three or four year old boy to Eli in a situation which it was, just doesn't make a lot of sense. But an older child, like an apprentice, age 12, to me that makes more sense. Now maybe I'm wrong. But nonetheless, she's going to fulfill her vow. So she says to her husband, No, I want to stay home and take care of him and really educate him, train him for what he's going to face working in that apostate family with Eli and his sons. Now, he's going to serve God, but the environment is not going to be good, and so he needs to be well prepared for what's going to be a difficult position for a young boy. But she had made a vow. So 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems good to you. Look at this trust between husband and wife. You do what's right. Do what seems you good. So you stay till you've weaned them. Only the Lord establish his word. Cause it to stand. There's no previous word from God directly mentioned, but maybe Hannah had told him by this point of her vow and Eli's blessing. And so her husband says, And God keep his word. So the woman abode gave her son suck or nursed him until she weaned him. 
23, 24 now. And so when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour, bottle of wine, brought him to the house of eternal in Shiloh. And the child was young, young. Elkanah was prosperous. The law required that a burnt offering be given at the completion of a special vow. And so they bring up three bullocks, maybe one for a burnt offering, one for a sin offering, one for a peace offering. Again, there's some debate on just what it was. But this yearly sacrifice, the sacrifice of the days, was during one of these three pilgrimage feasts, Passover and Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles. So they bring up their animals. I think Feast of Tabernacles fits best for the whole story because of what's to come. So when she had weaned him, she, she does deliver the boy to Eli. Let's go on to verse 25. So we have in verse 24 the animals. We have the flour for a meal offering. We have the wine for a drink offering. And 25 says, they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. This was family worship. They, plural pronoun. The bullock. Possibly Elkanah's sacrifice was thanksgiving for Samuel's birth. And the other two animals may have been his usual sacrifice. That's just one possibility. And she said, O oh my Lord, speaking to Eli, they slew the bullock and they brought the child to Eli. And she says to him, again, notice, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by you here praying to the Lord. Do you remember me? Remember I was praying, my lips were moving, but I wasn't saying anything and you thought I was drunk. And you gave me a blessing when I made that vow. Here he is. Here's Samuel. Let me introduce you to him. He's here to work with you. He's got priestly blood. He's going to be your apprentice. For this child I prayed, 27. And the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. Hannah uses the same words Eli did in verse 17. The God of Israel grant you your petition as you have asked of him. Go in peace. She uses the same words to recount them back to Eli so he recognizes who she is. And this verse 27 gives us the title for today's sermon. Petition granted. She petitioned God and it was granted. She has her boy, and now she gives him back to him as she promised. In the Bible, it says, better not to make a vow than to make one and not keep it. So, verse 28, therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. He worshiped the Lord there. Hannah presents her child to God with a grateful acknowledgement of the goodness of his answered prayer. But she knew Samuel was a gift from God that she now gives back to God. Anything that we receive from God has first, I mean, we give to God rather, has first come from God. We're only giving him back 
what he has first given us. All of our gifts to him were the first gifts he gave us. So although Samuel was from a family that had lived in Ephraimite territory, because of his residence in the territory of Ephraim, at least at one time, at least his parents, by his genealogy from First Chronicles, we know he was of Levitical blood. So he trains in the temple under Eli the priest to officiate at public services that include sacrifices. What set apart the priests like Eli was their access to the altar, the burnt offering, incense altar, making atonement for Israel. Only Aaron's sons and descendants could do that. She gives him back to God. The word Lent in the King James connotation of Lent implies a lifelong, unconditional loan. You've loaned him to me. Now I'm loaning him back to you. To give over, to make over, to return him, to completely give up. It's related to the word from verse 27 for ask. It's a play on words that we miss in our own language. Remember in Proverbs where the virtuous woman. Actually, this is in the passage just before the virtuous woman section in Proverbs 31. A woman talks about the son of her vows. Do the, do the honorable thing, my son. You're the son of my vows. Now, certainly fits Hannah's case here. And so they worship the Lord there. Now, that's not the, rest, the end of the story. Go on to chapter 2. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices. In the eternal. My horn is exalted in the eternal. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is neither, neither is there any rock like our God. And when you compare Hannah's hymn with Mary's, the mother of Jesus, you see some amazing parallels that have been noted for centuries by Bible readers. I have a chart here from the NIV Cultural and Background Bible, which puts these in two columns, Hannah's prayer, Mary's prayer. Things like God exalts the lowly. It's in both hymns. My heart rejoices in your deliverance in both. No one, there's no one holy like the Lord. And many other parallels. It'll make an interesting Sabbath study for you sometime. Read this prayer of Hannah's and then go and read Mary's. But this hymn has much theology. It was a custom of biblical writers to insert poems into prose books to increase the artistic and religious appeal, break up the narrative a bit. But this is a psalm of national thanksgiving, a prophetic psalm as well, as we will see. So she begins her prayer by rejoicing God's given her a child. This is a song of praise and thanksgiving. My heart rejoices not just in Samuel, but even more in God who heard her prayer. My horn is exalted. First time it's used this way in the Bible, and the horn on an animal represented its power, its pride, its erect head, that it was strong and secure, invincible. And it was used symbolically to represent a person who's confident in God. She had been delivered from disgrace to a position of honor and strength. And then in verse 2, sorry, verse 1, my mouth is enlarged. Now, it's not hard to kind of figure out what that means. What happens when your mouth enlarges? You smile. 
She's a happy woman. She was crying before, but she's happy now. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is neither is there any rock like our God. And that's a, called a theophoric name or theophoric name. That The name fits the way God was viewed in the ancient world as a deep place of defense, an immovable jutting cliff representing strength and stability. This is the God that we serve. And David, you will use that word as well. There is none beside you. There's no rock like our God. Verse 3, talk no more exceeding proudly. Let no arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the eternal is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. He's a just and fair God. And she knows that now. And she's not just addressing Penina as the proud here, but all the arrogant who oppose God think they know more than he does. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty men are broken. They that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread. They that were hungry see, so that the barren has born seven. And she has that has many children is waxed feeble. And she gives us three examples of how God reverses circumstances. There are unexpected turnarounds. One is military power. One is wealth. And the other is the birth of children. The barren has born seven. Now that must be a poetic number for perfection because as we'll read later in verse 21, Hannah, besides Samuel, has three sons and two daughters, six in all. But she uses that symbolic number, seven. Poetic number as well. Unexpected turnarounds. So, verse 4, the bows of the mighty men are broken, etc. All right, verse 6, the Lord kills, makes alive, he brings down to the grave, and he brings up. Did you ever notice that? Isn't that remarkable? Along with Abraham and Job, she seems to know something about a coming afterlife. That God has the ability to bring us back to life, even after death. God can kill. He can also make alive. He can bring down to the grave or bring up. It's remarkable. It's a striking statement of faith about a resurrection. A dead person being revived. And here it is in the story of Hannah. Verse 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. See, God has the power to reverse circumstances, even to bring people back to life who had died. That's the God we serve. And we just celebrated a feast which talks about a new world, a time when we ourselves will be transformed to meet Christ in the air, to rule with him forever. Verse 8, he raises up the poor out of the dust, lifts up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes, make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. This verse describes the compost heaps on the edge of town where people would dump their refuse and their ashes, where beggars and lepers would beg for food, solicit alms, the deepest degradation. 
He can raise those people back to good health and good circumstances. Because God controls the pillars of the earth, firm summits, perhaps referring to subsurface geologic structures, giving us general stability of the earth's surface. So the argument is from the greater to the lesser. If God can control the pillars of the earth, he can certainly do this for people. Verse 9, he will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness for by strength shall no man prevail. He will keep the feet of his people. Trails are often rocky and dangerous in the tradition of ancient wisdom literature. Hannah contrasted the righteous and the wicked. The adversaries of eternal, verse 10, shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. These are the words, brethren, from a woman's prayer that God moved her to recite that is now part of our scripture. But what is this in verse 10? The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hmm, this bears looking into. God will impose righteous rule. Hannah saw the work of God in granting her a son as another step in the fulfillment of his promise to the mothers of Israel that he would one day provide for them a Messiah. The word for king is Melech, and the word for anointed, Mashiach. You recognize that word? I hope my students do. Are you all listening, students? All 14? You should know what that is, because I use it in class a lot. Mashiach, the, the anointing of a king, was commonly practiced in the ancient Near East. Oil would run down his hair and his beard. But strength of his king... My question to you is, what king? Israel has no king. Israel's then being ruled by judges. He's preparing them for what's to come, his king. The reference is a prophetic forecast of a divine king that in the rest of the story we know relates to King David. Now, God gave legislation for what a future Israelite king would do. He was to write himself a copy of the law, for example. He was not to get mixed up with many women, etc. And so later, after this story, Israel will lobby for a king. And guess who is the one who is serving as prophet and judge at the time? King Samuel. And who do they appeal to to anoint their king? Samuel. But this earthly king of this theocratic government was to be God's viceroy, his earthly representative. Not an autocrat like the Gentile leaders, bossing people around, but under God, serving serving in servant leadership to his people. That's what was intended. Never quite worked out that way. His anointed is his Messiah. The equivalent from the Greek languages, Christos, Christ. 
And when we call Jesus Christ, it's not a surname. It's not a last name. It's his office. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one. And so later we're going to go into even Psalms. Talk about this coming king. Psalms 2, 72, 110, Isaiah 11. All talk about a coming great king of David who will rule on earth and restore God's government. And David was one of the best types of this ultimate anointed one. Verse 11, Elkanah went up to Ramah to his house, and a child did minister to the eternal before Eli the priest. Minister. The word was not used of slaves, but of a higher level of service like that offered by priests. So those years that Hannah had him at home, she trained him to know right and wrong. She prepared him for his priestly duties. She taught him God's ways as she understood them. And she brings that boy to God, turns him over for God's safekeeping among a corrupt family. In verse 12, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the eternal. What an environment. But she's confident that God will do the right thing and protect and spare Samuel and that he'll be strong. And that God will use him in a special way. And he certainly does. Samuel stands in contrast to Eli's sons who were not in relationship with God. They were sons of worthlessness, morally corrupt. And in verse 18, Samuel ministered before the eternal, being a child, girded with a linen ephod. His focus was on God, even though he's working with people who don't know God. And that's true for many of us in our environments. We're serving God among people that claim to know God but don't really know him. Samuel ministered before the eternal. Later, Eli will try to correct his sons, but it's too late. He may have been prompted to do that by Hannah's a good example. Verse 18. He wears a linen ephod, a close-fitting, vest-like, sleeveless garment, simple tunic or apron that were worn by priests when officiating at the altar. Samuel has now entered priestly service as an apprentice. And so he pulls over this garment about hip length with special embroidery, sometimes 12 stones representing the 12 tribes. At least that's what the high priest wore. And then verse 19, moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him year after year when she came with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. A sleeveless upper garment like that worn by priests reaching to the knees or feet. Worn over the undergarment, but under the ephod, different from the ephod. Probably a long outer garment like those worn by people of rank and special status. Joseph's coat of many colors may have been such a coat. It had symbolic significance. And every year, verse 19, Hannah made him a little coat. Mothers, what do you think she's thinking about as she's working on that coat for him? She's praying 
God, spare my son in that terrible environment. She would not forget him every day. Months, she's working on this little coat, showing her love for him. He's no longer in her home, but he's still in her heart. She can't forget him. She won't forget him. It's extremely hard to leave him, but her fear of God was greater. She does the next best thing. She looks forward to seeing him at that annual feast. Distance will not cause her to forget him. Brethren, stay in touch with family. Don't lose touch. Use Hannah's example. And so Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give you seed of this woman for the loan which is get lent to the Lord. And they went to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters. And the child Samuel grew up before the Lord. God visited her in a positive way. It was used of Sarah when she conceived Isaac as well. Honoring them, visiting them with a blessing. The Lord visited Hannah so she conceived and bare two sons. And the child Samuel, you know what it says literally in the Hebrew? Samuel grew up with Yahweh. He grew up with the eternal. And it appears that Eli blesses Elkanah and Hannah for their faithfulness. And every time they come up to Shiloh, he adds another blessing. God granted Hannah's request as he done, had done to Sarah. Provides them a big family. When once she had been barren. And now verse 26. The child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and with men. And here he's a type of Christ. Because in Luke... We read this. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God in men. And this is the last mention of Hannah in her Bible. But isn't that a lovely story? She's a model for us of <clears throat> fervent prayer, obedience, worship, family devotion. She left a legacy that lived on through Samuel who will go on to anoint the first two kings of Israel. But even more, just a little bit more of the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Chapter 7, verse 15. Chapter 7, 15. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Remember, he was a permanent Levite, permanent Nazarite, <clears throat> And he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places. And so with these three sites, all the tribes of Israel could have access to him. He's serving as a judge. And his return was to Ramah, for there was his house, and there he judged Israel. And there he built an altar to the eternal. Samuel, as busy as he was, did not lose touch with his ancestral home. He probably had relatives there, cousins, aunts and uncles. And he annually at least comes by to visit them, perhaps more often, on his many journeys. He's a traveler for sure. 
And he establishes an altar in his hometown because chapter 4 indicates Shiloh is no more. The Philistines have captured the ark. And so now Samuel, because of this circumstance, sets up a worship center right there so that the worship of God would continue. Samuel judged Israel. And so he went to Ramah. He didn't lose touch with his family, as busy as he was. I think it's a good lesson for all of us. So what can we take away from this wonderful story? Let me give you four things. Number one is, based on the story of Hannah, seeking a solution apart from God's word will lead to trouble down the road. She didn't do that. She avoided persecution. Circumstances can cause grief, and we often don't understand them. But God knows our story from beginning to end, and everything has a purpose. Trusting him is never misplaced. Number two, we see Hannah as an example of being persistent in prayer and patience. She trusted God's timetable. She wanted a boy right then, but she had to wait until God conceived a child and nine months later gave birth. She had to be patient. She trusted God's timetable. Three, we have to do our part, but we have to wait on God to vindicate our good name. Hannah desired a son, and God did not chastise her for being discontented. We're told in the New Testament, godly contentment's great gain. But that does not mean that our human desires are sinful in God's eyes, because... In Philippians, it says God invites us to bring our request to him, as Hannah did when she asked for that boy. An experience that only women can appreciate, I'm sure, fully. So God, number four, may have a special blessing for your patience and faithfulness. So we have to do our part to wait for God to vindicate our good name and trust him because God hears and rescues all the Hannahs of the world. But God may have a special blessing in store after the patience is completed. God gave her that son. And what a son he was. And she trained him to be an outstanding leader. He was not perfect, as you'll read later, his own sons. There's some question about them, but... Otherwise, an outstanding leader. And when Jesus returns, maybe Feast of Trumpets, somewhere around there perhaps, God's going to reverse the circumstances of his suffering people. Hannah has taught us many lessons. In the end, God rewarded her faithfulness with a son who changed the course of Israelite history and world history. Samuel was her petition granted.